Place it comfortably. So, second day of session, settling in. Yesterday I talked about <coughs> St Francis and how towards the end of his life um, <coughs> he started to refer to his body as brother body after have, perhaps having neglected it for a long time throughout his life, maybe even abused it. <coughs> but the wisdom that grew through the years is that this is brother body <coughs> and uh, a need to befriend brother body. So in the same spirit, the um, title of this talk is Brother Anxiety, or Sister Anxiety, depending on which um, gender you prefer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and anxiety is in the body. So the whole point of this talk is about befriending anxiety. And we all experience anxiety. It's part of the condition of being a human being. <clears throat> Um, but the problem is most of us in various kind of ways, as we'll explore, experience excessive anxiety. Now, if I was to be a psychologist to begin with, um, but I'll leave that identity behind, um, but to be a psychologist to begin with, psychologists would, would view that, um, that often anxiety uh, comes with some kind of um, temperament or genetic predisposition, and some, as mothers would know, um, you know, but researchers have now sort of made into scientific studies, is that children are born with temperaments, mm -hmm. and you can distinguish a temperament of one baby from another baby, and the research they do shows that some babies are just born more anxious than other babies, it's just the way they are, mm -hmm. and uh, it's probably due to some genetic predisposition probably. <clears throat> so they're just the kind of cards that we dealt. And it doesn't mean just because we're, we're an anxious person that our, our life will be unhappy. Uh -huh. But it's just like someone, some children come out angry, you know, and some children come out sick and some come out healthy. It's just, just the way it is. Mm -hmm. It's a variety of life expressing itself. And... Uh, who knows, there might even be some grand evolutionary purpose to having anxious people, right? Maybe they put the brakes on things, you know, when we need to be too cautious. Uh -huh. <clears throat> and of course, um, you know, anxiety could perhaps come out of early childhood experiences like insecure attachment, um, not having loving caregivers around, you know, or having harsh treatment or neglect in our formative years, um, or, or could also come from, from trauma. Mm -hmm. There's all those reasons, do you know, why anxiety may be there or may be excessive to the situation. But from a Dharma perspective, um, we all experience anxiety. And the word dukkha, you know, which means dissatisfaction um, or suffering, you know, has an element of anxiety within it. And from a Dharma perspective, <coughs> anxiety arises in human beings because one, life, everything is empty 
meaning um, there is nothing solid and substantial to existence. It's just sort of like a dream and it's shifting and changing shape all the time. You know, one form dying and becoming another form and everything's just interconnected to everything else and has no separate existence. Mm -hmm. And yet we want to be, we want, we want certainty and we want, we want separateness and identity. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the reality of the way life is but we want it another way, um, then that will create anxiety. And the second truth of existence is that it's transient, it's impermanent. Um, and if that's the way life is, but we want permanence, well, we're going to cause anxiety because there's a conflict we've set up. Mm -hmm. um, the third, so the third mark of existence in a lot of Dharma books is suffering, which really confused the hell out of me for a long time until I read something by Thich Nhat Hanh, which clarified it. And he referred back to an earlier Buddhist teaching that life, that it is the nature of life that it's empty and it's transient. And if you resist those two truths, then you'll have suffering. Mm -hmm. And if you don't resist them, you won't have suffering. Because mm -hmm. the Bo Buddhism, you know, teaches that there is an end to suffering. So it confused me to say that this was like a basic tenet of life, that there is suffering. There may be pain, there may be unpleasantness, but suffering is the added psychological um, issue or preoccupation or thinking that we add on top of what is there. Mm -hmm. but of course, there's no, there's no life without pain and there's no life without unpleasantness. This is perhaps to understand the nature of anxiety becomes clearer if we go to another well-known Buddhist teaching, which you've heard me talk about before, which is the, the eight worldly winds. Mm -hmm. And the eight worldly winds come in four pairs, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, um, praise and blame. Fame and ignominy. Mm -hmm. I'll go over them again because they're really good. Not need to remember them. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and mediocrity. Let's say, or mundaneness, or lack of lack of um, lack of attention. Mm -hmm. And it's the nature of our existence that most people are grasping for or clinging to or attached to gain, pleasure, praise, fame mm -hmm. and have an aversion to their opposites. Mm -hmm. Loss, pain, blame, ignominy. Mm -hmm. And all of us live out our lives to one degree or another, caught in that tangle, in that conflict. And we're attaching to the positive things and we're grasping at them and we want more and more of them and we have an aversion to the negative things and we want less and less of them. And, um, and that creates anxiety. Right there, that creates anxiety. 
because no human being, seriously, is going to go through their life always experiencing pleasure, always experiencing gain, always experiencing praise or acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. Just not going to happen, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, um, but the degree that we, we cling to those positives and expect them to happen or feel entitled to them to happen, then we create anxiety. And that's the anxiety that everyone experiences. It might get accentuated by these other temperament things that we're, we're, we're born with or by um, distressing experiences that might happen to us. But that's the, that's the, the baseline that everyone's working on. And um, the word dukkha is really just the Buddhist psychology term for what in modern contemporary language is generally depression, anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. And in psychology we actually have a scale called the DAS scale which is, measures depression, anxiety and stress. It's kind of me measuring general dukkha mm -hmm. and, and disconnectedness, dissatisfaction. Um, depression is often about the past, like ruminating on the past, regretfulness, things lost. Anxiety is usually about the future, about worry about what's going to happen, anticipating what's going to happen. And stress is really more of the present moment, you know, what is actually acting on me now, do you know, that's creating some, some tension, do you know, that I've got an assignment that's due, do you know, tomorrow and I haven't finished it, that type of thing. Or the mortgage has to be paid yesterday. Uh -huh. That type of thing. But what happens, to put a Buddhist frame on, on this, is that people then talk about depression, anxiety and stress as though they are real separate entities that sort of come upon you, you know, and, and you need to take a pill for or go to therapy for or whatever. But in the way we understand things from a Dharma perspective, is that everything is interconnected. And if we see the, the interconnectedness or the interbeing of depression, stress and anxiety, we see that they, they play off one another. They're not these separate entities, they're just adjectives for experience. And that's, what we, that's the mistake of language all the time and the mistake of concepts. We use an adjective to describe something and then the, the adjective becomes a separate real entity. My depression, mm -hmm. etc. It's just an adjective that describes an experience that comes and goes. So if we're caught in that, if we're blown around by those eight winds, each, each of those pairs is a conflict. We live in conflict. Where there's anxiety, there's conflict. Where there's conflict, there's anxiety. And um, everyone comes to, um, to, to Zen practice in, in some way or another with a conflict. And we may not be able to actually put it into words what it is, but it's, it's the thing, it's the burr under the saddle that's driving us towards um, Dharma practice. And... Um, Where there is conflict, in other words, there's dualistic thinking. Mm -hmm. 
and we've divided the world up into this and that. There's life versus death. There's gain versus loss. There's pleasure versus pain. Mm -hmm. And if there was a transformation, not just in our language, but in our being, like in the very cells of our body, that just made a little shift and went, no, it's not actually gain versus loss. It's actually gain and loss. It's not actually pleasure versus pain. It's pleasure and pain. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we knew that in our bones, there would be a transformation of the conflict. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not enough, apparently, just to say the magic words and say pleasure and pain, you know, rather than pleasure versus pain. Uh -huh. um, that's an intellectual teaching that might be a signpost for us. But just saying the magic words won't transform your experience. Doing what we're doing here this week transforms your experience, mm -hmm. not the words. It's just simply not that easy. Um, but everyone, everyone experiences um, conflict, and um, and conflict comes out not just in the way that we live our life, but as someone said to me yesterday, um, session is kind of like a microcosm of our life, and what, whatever we do in our life, we do here, and we sit with our inner conflict. And we may not even be able to put it into words what it is. But when we, when we just sit with no project in front of us, you know, we're just here with our own experience breathing, something arises. It's like there's an arm wrestle inside of us, you know, and, and the arms are fighting against one another, you know, to, and they're bracing against one another. And it creates a lot of physical and mental tension. And um, as we go through session, do you know, and as we go through a lifetime of practice, somehow that conflict doesn't resolve itself in the sense of one side winning out over the other. It's kind of like it just drops away. Like this, this arm wrestle just stops. Mm -hmm. It's like they both shook hands rather than fighting against one another. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but the, the inner conflict drops away. And, and you see that happening for people who um, come back, just turn up and keep coming back to practice over and over again. You see the conflict dropping away. And so therefore, a lot of this unnecessary um, anxiety drops away as well. And Kalan's study is really um, a formalised way in which this, these conflicts are embodied. You know, where you have a have a koan like um, stop the sound of that distant mountain bell. Mm -hmm. It looks like a conflict and, how you, and you can't explain it and you can't solve it with your intellect and yet we'll get into a, a fight with it, you know, as a koan student you know, and, try and try and understand it and beat it and get the answer. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just embodying the conflict which is already there. Mm -hmm. And there, there are formal koans, which are useful things to do, but there are life koans as well. And we all bring versions of life koans to our practice. One of them may simply be, um, I'm really scared of other people 
but I want to get close to them. Or it could be, I really want to be skillful at what I do, but I'm really scared of failing. Um, or it could be, like more specifically, I want to be a good public speaker, but I'm scared of saying the wrong thing and looking foolish. And often the way that we, we um, disentangle ourselves from this, this conflict is when we go towards um, saying something stupid, uh-huh. making a mistake, mm-hmm. maybe even putting ourselves at risk of being rejected. You know, it's like we, instead of going away, you know, turning away and having an aversion towards the dreaded thing that might happen, we then consciously start to include it and go towards it. Psychologists might call it exposure therapy. Uh-huh. But you start to embrace the thing that you have the most fear about. And as you do that, um, something transforms. You're breaking down this attachment aversion kind of dynamic that runs through all of us. You know, that, that essential part of Buddhist psychology, which is the second noble truth, that grasping and aversion is the cause of suffering, translate that into depression, anxiety, stress and all the things that go with it. Um, for me personally, it is like a very, it's like that's the, that's the core of the teaching. If, there, if there's a kind of a, a psychological theory, both in Western psychology or Buddhism or whatever, that's central to the way I see my life and understand it and practice with it would be that, that point right there. Mm-hmm. Grasping an aversion, grasping onto the things that I want, you know, or pleasurable, and having aversion to the negative. And to, to hold that, you know, as, to see that not just as a theory, but to experience that experientially in your life and be willing to look at it, how it works in your life. That to me is really central to unravelling this this knot of suffering that we get caught into and the conflict that we get caught into. Um, In my um, Irish music group that I go to there used to be, some years ago, um, a player who was a, a piper. And he was probably the best musician in the group and, and just played wonderfully and, and effortlessly. And then he moved back to, to America. He was an American. But the leader of our, our group was talking about him one time and just giving, some, giving us some tips on you know, how to play music. And he said probably the reason he was so good is, one, he practised a lot. And secondly, he was prepared to make an idiot of himself. Mm-hmm. In other words, he was prepared to make mistakes, you know, and play with really good people and may not be as good as them and so on, and then just kept doing that over and over again. And when I heard those words, I thought, yeah, that's, that's good advice for Zen students. Uh-huh. Practice a lot and be prepared, be prepared to make an idiot of yourself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then you, you, what you're doing 
to go back to yesterday's talk, is that we're, we're breaking down the narcissism and we're cultivating humility. And most people think that by um, investing in the I and admiring me more and more and more, you're going to, you're going to get there. And that's going to make you better at relationships or better at what you do or more successful in life. Um, but my experience is, and it's a teaching of all spiritual traditions, is that if you practice humility, like you don't keep investing in the eye, you know, in the eye that's got to be looking good and succeeding all the time. If you practice humility, which is this, what this Irish piper did, you know, just turning up and being prepared to make mistakes in front of people, that's the way you actually reduce your anxiety and, and your stress, and actually life becomes easier. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the way through. Um, humility is not humiliating. Mm -hmm. Humility, the word humility comes from the Latin humus, which means earth or to be down to earth. So to have humility is to be down to earth to have your feet solidly on the ground. Mm -hmm. And if your feet are solidly on the ground, you can't fall. Mm -hmm. But if you're floating up here, you know, in grandiosity, you can fall a long way. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very solid, confident place to be on the ground. Mm -hmm. Down here on the ground. So in befriending anxiety, and to see our brother anxiety or our sister anxiety, we need to realise that anxiety is our friend. Mm -hmm. And as our friend, it's always trying to protect us from harm, you know, from getting hurt. That's what its function is. And just at a, a biological and neurological level, part of that anxiety mechanism where it begins in the brain is the amygdala, which is the fight-flight mechanism, or it's actually fight, flight, freeze mechanism. We forget the freeze one. And when that gets triggered, it sends, you know, um, hormones and so on racing through the body that make us either run or fight or become rigid, whatever, become still. And um, it's there to protect us. Like in all animals, it's there to protect us. So anxiety is your friend. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's an overzealous friend. Uh -huh. And um, it's like a big brother, you know, who, who's a bit anxious himself. And he wants to make sure his little brother doesn't, you know, get hurt at all. So he's very careful, you know, maybe over careful. And little brother wants to, wants to, you know, have his feet getting washed by the waves in the ocean and go out a little bit, you know, up to his knees. And big brother says, don't go in there, the sharks, you'll get, you'll get eaten by the sharks, get out of there, you know, quick. Huh? And, um, but that's what, the, that's what anxiety is trying to do, it's trying to protect us from harm, when, but it goes over the top sometimes when it's excessive, you know. So maybe at least we can too is, is turn big brother into little brother, you know, and go, and little brother says, oh, you know, you might get kidnapped by, by sharks and go, okay, well, thanks, little brother, for, you know, giving me the warning, but I think I'll be okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we need to see, we do need to make friends with anxiety rather than seeing it as the enemy. That's just another conflict. 
and, um, and that we, we do recognise that its essential intention is to protect us from harm. Mm -hmm. That's what it's there for. Um, what, is, what is also at the core of um, Zen practice is um, recognising what identities we get caught up in. You know? And it's all, all linked in to these teachings we're talking about today. But we get caught up in a certain identity, a certain self-image of the way we ought to be. Um, and we're measuring ourselves against that all the time. And, and part of our practice is to identify what those identities are that we've created for ourselves or our culture has created for ourselves and, and to stop investing in them, take the investment out of them. Mm -hmm. um, that's personally one of the things I've realised through years of Dharma practice is that I had an identity and who knows where it came from partly cultural, whatever, which I, I would now refer to as counterphobic, which is, you know, identifying with the person who has to be courageous all the time and have no fear. And if any, any challenge comes up, then you've got to meet it, otherwise you would be a coward. Right? And, and a number of years ago, I had a, I had a dream. And it was, a re it was one of those dreams where you realise there's a teaching in it. And in the dream, I was taken through these very high mountain ravines and crevices by these young um, guides, do you know, who were as nimble as mountain goats, do you know, and they were jumping up and down and, and I was following them. And then we were right up high and then we came to this place where there was a big jump, do you know, and it had to jump not just over but up. And and one of these young guys said, well, we we'll go up here now. And he jumped up like a mountain goat. He said, yeah, just jump over. It's easy, you know. And I looked down and there was this, like, ravine that went down. You couldn't even see the bottom of it, like a sheer cliff. And, and in the dream, I said, no, I'm not going. And the young guy said, look, it's really easy, you know. You just go up here, boom, 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 you know. I said, no, I'm not going. Mm -hmm. And, that, and, and that, that was a significant dream. It's like... You can say no to something that's really, really fearful or scary to do, and it's okay. Uh -huh. And it's okay. There's wisdom in that. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to be driven to conquering anxiety. We need to listen to it, and if we listen to it, then it informs wisdom. We go, yeah, that's. I'll, I'll do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. rather than being driven in a certain direction of always saying no or driven in a certain direction of always saying yes to something. Mm -hmm. Wisdom is an exercise of discernment and choice mm -hmm. and it's important that, that that wisdom that we cultivate is actually the, um, the, uh, the choice point in our experience. You know, rather than um, our, our, our fixated identities or our excessive emotional experiences. Mm 
So, as we practice in sasim with this, we always return to the body. And the body is not just flesh and bones. The body is a nervous system. And the nervous system, you know, experiences some level of anxiety. We, always, we all have a base level of anxiety just to survive. There's always a little trickle of electricity going through there. And, and, if it, and if the system needs to go on alarm because something dangerous is about to happen, then that's what it will do. It's like an alarm bell inside. Um, so there's always a little trickle there. We're never going to get rid of that entirely. Um, but it's where it's out of proportion to where there's actually no threat or little threat, threat and we're overreacting to it um, is the issue. So in sitting, you know, if there's anxiety in the body, then that's a here and now experience. It's a body sensation which is here and now. So we're just like anything, like the bird song, we're just present to it. And we watch it being transient. We watch how it moves, how it intensifies, how it loosens off, how it peaks and troughs. But what the key element of practice is, is to be able to stay with that here and now body experience of anxiety and notice really clearly, really mindfully, how it triggers off certain thinking processes which are like catastrophizing, you know, or negative thinking patterns and so on. And that's the point of practice, right? That's, that's the point of thought labouring practice, you know, to see, see the thinking which is created out of that and instead of just blindly following it automatically, label it, cut off the thinking, come back into the body. If there's anxiety there, stay with the body experience of anxiety. And if it's there, if it wants to visit you, it visits you. If it doesn't want to visit you, it doesn't want to visit you. Right? you. Just be with what is. And if it wants to come back later with more intensity, then invite it in. Mm-hmm. Don't ever think you've conquered it, because it's not something to conquer. But it is something to befriend. <laughs>